Bibles to page number 30. If you're using the Pew Bible, if you're using your own Bible, Genesis 31. We're going to be studying the whole of this chapter, so I had uh, Elder Boyajan read the first 24 verses, and in a moment we will pick up with verse 25. That's page 30 in your Pew Bible, it is Genesis 31. So we continue our study of Jacob's life. There are a lot of books out there about the Bible. There are so many commentaries, devotionals, free classes, internet courses. Many of them are really quite good, and many of them are quite horrible. And still more, maybe the majority, are just mediocre. Not terrible, but not really great either. But did you know, there is one commentary on the Bible that is truly inspired. I have it in my office. Several of you have them as well, in case you didn't know. It never goes wrong. It will never let you down, and it is never mediocre. Some of you know where I'm going here. The only perfect commentary, as we just confessed, the only perfect commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Now, please don't think I'm pulling your leg. I'm completely serious here. Here's how our confession puts it in chapter 1, section number 9. The infallible, that means perfect, rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. This is such a powerful idea, an infallible rule. Since the Bible has one divine author, the Holy Spirit, I can read, you can read forward and backward and listen to how the Spirit interprets his own word. Every faithful pastor knows that the secret to rich Bible study is context, context, context. Augustine famously said the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. The different parts of the Bible inform each other. That's why the title of our sermon today is Jacob's Exodus. Jacob's Exodus. Even though the Exodus is still hundreds of years in the future, Jacob's escape from Syria is a type of the greater exodus to come when Jacob's whole family will escape a bitter and jealous tyrant and Pharaoh. At the last minute, you'll recall, Pharaoh will rush after the Israelites and trap them at the Red Sea. But then, just then, God will save his people. Jacob's family will come out of Egypt as a great nation. They were slaves, but they emerged with great wealth from their exile. Now Moses is writing Genesis for those Israelites who have just escaped slavery from Egypt. Genesis, as we've seen, is their origin story. Moses is trying, and it's hard work, to lead them back to the land of promise. But the people have been in Egypt for 400 years. They need to know who their fathers were. 
They need to be strengthened by their history. Only then will they have the determination and confidence to go to a new land and conquer it. As God, the Holy Spirit, reveals the lives of the fathers to Moses, he writes, Moses can't help but see how Jacob's life has so many parallels, so many connections to other things that have happened. Jacob's blessings sound exactly like the blessings that were lost when man was cast out of the Garden of Eden. Moses realizes this and uses the same words in Hebrew to describe Eden and what God is doing through the fathers. But Moses also sees deep connections to his own time. Uncle Laban holds Jacob in bondage, and Uncle Laban will not let God's people go. And yet, by God's power, Jacob escapes and emerges a great people with the spoils of Syria. I think Moses would agree. Context, context, context. Life is all about knowing who you are in the bigger story of what God is doing in the world. And that is what is before us tonight in the exodus of Jacob. Because I'm going to read a large number of verses, I'll invite you to remain seated. Join me now at verse 25, though, and let's finish this important chapter in the life of Jacob and in the life of God's people. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban and his, with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? that you have tricked me and given away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and song, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. 
From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father... The God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? For these my daughters are for their children whom they have borne. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galeed. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and this pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we have just sung that you are our portion. And though we hardly understand it, yet we confess that all things belong to us in Christ and that you are our true inheritance. And therefore, as adopted children, we would cry to you this night and ask that you would give us that spirit of adoption, that we might know who we belong to and what our inheritance truly is in Christ. As these men struggle over inheritance, over the belongings that were before them, we see in it a deeper and greater struggle that each one of us has. What things will be certainly ours, we ask. But we find that answer in the Lord Jesus Christ that this world and the heavens and all things will be ours, for indeed you are our inheritance and we can ask for nothing better. So fill us with the truth of what is ours and the glory of your grace and send us away into a new week with fullness and without hunger. We pray and ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Did you know that there are at least four major exodus events recorded in the Bible. The first great one will happen about 400 years after this moment that we're studying when Moses leads the people out of Egypt. You're probably familiar with that one. But then there's another second great exodus in the Old Testament. 
It's when uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and the others lead the people out of exile back into the land. We're starting to look at that in our study of Isaiah in the mornings. The third great exodus in your Bible is going on right now. Through the gospel of Jesus, slavery to sin and Satan is broken and believers are coming together as a new holy nation, a royal priesthood, according to the Apostle Peter. The author of Hebrews connects the dots for us when he refers to us also as a wilderness generation, a generation that's come out of slavery, come out of the world, come out of sin, but are still waiting to enter our finest, final promised land, our final rest. We've been liberated, but we're still journeying. And then fourthly, lastly, Christ's return will trigger that great final exodus. In fact, all the other exoduses are just shadows and types of the one great climactic exodus that is coming at the return of Christ. In a moment, Jesus will transform his people, crush his enemies, and bring us into the eternal rest and promised land. Now, what you need to understand, I think, tonight is that our story is connected to all those other exodus stories. What's happening here is not just two Middle Eastern men trying to get rich. This isn't just a dysfunctional family, although it is certainly dysfunctional. But rather, something bigger is going on here. The fate of the world is at stake here. Jacob is the promised one. He holds in his person the hope of the world. As big a mess as Jacob is, he is the light of the world at this point. He is the city built on the hill. He is the salt of the earth. Christ's story is bound up in his story. No Jacob, no Jesus. Satan and the dark forces of our world know this. They've watched as Jacob flourished. They've recognized the signs. As Jacob said in chapter 30, everywhere my feet went, there was flourishing, using the language of the Garden of Eden in Hebrew there. Darkness, Satan and his followers now know it's the younger one, the younger twin, Jacob. This is the seed of the woman. This is a man like Adam who is close to God. This is the one who is in covenant with the living God. Maybe they can even see the stairway parked beside Jacob. The temple of God is with him and the angels ascend and descend next to him. You'll remember last time in our study of Genesis 30 that Laban sought the help of these dark powers. The Bible says that Laban practiced a form of divination or sorcery. More than likely, this wasn't a, a Ouija board like we have today, but rather Laban used his household gods in some kind of religious rite. In some dark tent filled with incense, he bowed before a set of images that would look like ugly toys to our eyes. The ancient world is full of them. I've seen them now myself in Greece. Greece has many museums full of these little gods, these thousands of gods. These were his household gods. He wanted to know why he was doing so well and how he could get more, more stuff, more power, more of everything. 
The darkness answered him. They said to Laban, that's right. You are blessed because of him. Don't let him go. Laban didn't know who was behind the message. He probably thought, as many did back then, that his ancestors were speaking to him. The darkness was happy to have Laban think that he was just listening to his long-dead grandma and grandpa. It didn't matter who Laban thought he was communing with. All that mattered was that Laban heard what he wanted to hear. Laban is a slave to himself and his appetites. And the darkness urged him on in that path. Laban liked what he heard. He probably called it tradition or being true to himself. But just like today, in reality, it was just lust dressed up. Who is strong enough then to deliver Jacob from Laban and his gods? Well, our God is the God of the Exodus of all the Exoduses. He alone can deliver from slavery. No one can stop him from blessing his people. He will never leave them or forsake them. By the end, we will see Laban's gods are menstrual cloths for Rachel. She sits on them during her period and defiles them. They are worthless, blind, impotent, and defiled. But the God of Jacob reigns. In our text, Jacob's exodus unfolds in three scenes that I want to ponder with you this evening. The first shows us how God led him, as it were, by the hand out of slavery. God led him out of slavery. The second shows us how God protected and saved him from Laban. And the third and last scene in your chapter shows us how God established him as an independent family and eventually as a nation. So look with me first in verses 1 through 16 at how God led him, as it were, by the hand out of slavery. Jacob's exodus begins, as all exoduses do, with a word from God. God calls, he leads Jacob into freedom. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Jacob was hearing rumors. Things were getting back to him. Laban's sons envied him and were telling others that Jacob's wealth was a trick. We can kind of imagine the sons saying something like this. It's just like Jacob to steal our inheritance. After all, that's who he is, a grasper. You've heard the stories about him and Esau, right? Laban, on the other hand, didn't say anything that could get back to Jacob. He was too clever for that. But Jacob knew in his heart that Laban had come to hate him. In the Hebrew text, the Bible literally says that Laban's face fell. That's the Hebrew way of saying that he came to envy and hate Jacob. In fact, it's the identical phrase used by Moses to describe how Cain came to feel about Abel. 
that he envied him, hated him, and you know the story, eventually killed even his own brother Abel. The Israelites who are hearing this for the first time from Moses' pen knew that look well. It's how the Egyptians had looked at them. In the early days when Joseph was alive, the Egyptians were like family. Everything Joseph touched, kind of like Jacob, it flourished. Egypt was happy to be blessed alongside God's family, that is, at first. But the Jews kept growing. They kept having kids. They kept flourishing and being blessed. And after Joseph died, the Egyptians began to change. They resented, envied, and feared the people of God. They tried making them slaves, but they did, that didn't stop them. So they tried killing all the male infants. They were desperate to keep them, to keep them, but they also hated and envied them. Moses knew this look well. But here's an amazing truth, a truly amazing truth. The hostility of Laban and his sons is part of God's plan. If Jacob gets comfortable in Syria, if he just marries into the family and stays like most people would, the promises of God will fail. The line of Christ will be broken. Think of it this way. When God called Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, from this same neighborhood, he demanded that Abraham leave all that behind and live as a sojourner in the promised land. If Jacob goes back to the same place that Abraham came from and becomes a citizen again, if he settles down, if he gets comfortable, then we're right back where we started. Laban then, you see, is God's Laban. God is using Laban to keep Jacob uncomfortable. Do you see? There's a big part of Jacob that never wants to go back to the promised land. And there's a part of Jacob that never wants to go home and face Esau again. He's terrified of his older brother, as we'll see. And so God allows Laban to oppress Jacob so that Jacob never settles down. And then at the perfect time when Jacob has some wealth, has his children and is sick of Laban, at the perfect time, God comes again to Jacob and says, leave. And notice the wonderful promise that God gives to Jacob. That promise, remember, that comes right from the Garden of Eden. Verse 3, I will be with you. I will be with you. That, brothers and sisters, never forget this. That is the master promise in the Bible. All our blessings go back to this one promise. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you. Now, the Jacob who came to Syria 20 years earlier may have not really trusted God's word, but this Jacob, the Jacob who's learned the hard way for 20 years, he listened. He believed that God is able to do this, and he starts to make his arrangements. The very first thing he needs to do is to speak honestly with his wives. He does this in verses 4 through 14. I won't read all those verses again, but just notice some critical points. First, Jacob tells them the truth. 
There are no schemes here. And we know Jacob loves his schemes. He says in verses six and seven, you know how I served your dad. You know that your dad changed the deal 10 times, but God would not let him hurt me. If he said that I could have the spotted, then all the herd were spotted. If he said I could have the striped, they were all striped. Jacob then does something really hard to do. He tells his wives about his vision. Look at verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. Remember, that's where he had the stairway vision. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. This is a really critical moment for Rachel and Leah as Jacob shares this vision with them. They have lived in the same place their entire lives. They have worshipped with Laban all that time. That is, they've been raised in false religion. Now their husband is saying to them, I know this is hard to believe, but I'm a prophet. God talks to me sometimes, and we need to go back to my homeland and worship the true God of my parents. The Hebrew here in this chapter is full of the word inheritance. Inheritance. The sons of Laban are worried about their inheritance. Now Jacob is asking his wives to go with him to take God and the promised land as their inheritance. Whatever Jacob's fears, God was faithful. You see, God used the oppression of Laban to keep Jacob from fitting in, from settling down. But God also used the oppression of Laban to keep Rachel and Leah from wanting to stay. Look at verse 15. Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Remember that Jacob served Laban for 14 years for Leah and Rachel. That was a huge bridal price. According to custom, Laban was supposed to save up that value, the value, or at least some of the value of those 14 years, and give that value back to his daughters so that they would have money to work with and security for themselves and their children, especially if something happened to Jacob. But Laban had given his daughters nothing. He had treated his own daughters as slaves and not as children. When this was happening, Rachel and Leah must have asked, as we often do, why us? Why is God allowing me to go through this? But as we look back, we can see God was using this evil to prepare them, to bring them to the end of themselves so that they would leave with their husband. Isn't that a wonderful truth? In the end, Laban's sin against Jacob serves God's purpose. How frustrating it must be to be Satan. You ever thought of that? How frustrating it must be to be Satan, to know that even when you seem to be winning, you are actually losing. 
All the oppression that Laban heaped on Jacob, in the end, it only made Jacob depend more on God. It only confirmed for Jacob that God was really with him. For 20 years, Jacob watched as God blessed him, despite all the odds being stacked against him. From our text, we can almost hear Jacob saying, Yes, Laban meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The same is true for Rachel and Leah. When Jacob went to his wives and said, God is with me and we need to leave, God had been preparing those two women for 20 years so that they would say, yes, we see it too. We see that God is with you and we're ready to leave and we're ready to follow. I wonder, can you see something of that in your own life? Can you see that some of the most bitter things are the things used of God to pry you loose from this world. Maybe your old age, your struggling body, is meant to make you long for a new country. Maybe your struggles at work, although not good in themselves, are meant in part to remind you that you have better things to come. In this wonderful, tender, and sovereign way, God takes us all by the hand. He takes us all by the hand, as it were and breaks our addiction to the here and now and leads us in our exodus. Our sorrows, our sorrows plant in our hearts a longing for more, a longing for our father's house, our father's land. In this magnificent and complex way, God has been working toward this moment all along, all 20 years. He led them out by the hand. Secondly, notice how God powerfully saves them in verses 17 through 42. For time's sake, we'll go quickly here. But just notice with me uh, how much this should remind us of the Exodus. After many plagues, you'll recall, Pharaoh finally lets Israel go. Through their whole experience of slavery and the plagues, the people of Israel have rediscovered, even in the oppression and hardship that they went through, they've rediscovered, like Jacob, who their God is, and they've learned to trust God and long for a different life. They're sick of Egypt. They know they have a mighty God, and they're ready to go. And like Jacob, they plunder their oppressors. The Egyptians are forced to pay for all that labor that they stole for all those years. The same is happening here. But do you remember what happens next in the life of Israel? The people head out of slavery, but Pharaoh chases them down through his army. And that's what's happening here. Look at verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him. And pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban, with his kinsmen, pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. As soon as Laban discovers that Jacob is making a run for it, he pursues him aggressively like Pharaoh. He takes his kinsmen with him 
and catches up with Jacob. Jacob is driving his animals, his herds. He has his wives and his children with him. He can't outrun Laban and Laban's army of mounted men, just as Israel cannot outrun Pharaoh's army with all those animals and, and children. He cannot outrun and he cannot defeat. And don't mistake this. This is a military situation. Laban will not let Jacob go without a fight. The language here, the picture, is of a looming battle. Notice how in verse 25 we're told that they pitch tents across from each other with an open space in between. Why did they do that? This is an ancient way of saying they prepared for battle. They lined up to go at it. Laban was arranging his host across from Jacob with a piece of land in between. This was the common way of going to battle. But just as God saved Israel from the pursuit of Pharaoh, so here he rescues Jacob. He comes to Laban in a dream and says, be careful. The ESV translation has left the Hebrew here very literal. Don't speak to him good or bad. Don't even raise your voice is probably the way of putting that. Not only should you not hurt him, but don't even yell at him because I am with him. And so instead of a battle breaking out, a battle that Jacob would have lost, an argument breaks out. Laban accuses Jacob of stealing away like a thief and depriving him of his beloved daughters. One can almost imagine Rachel and Leah rolling their eyes at this point. But then Laban accuses Jacob of also stealing his gods. Jacob knows nothing of this. In fact, he says, if anyone has done this, let them be killed. What Jacob doesn't know is that Rachel has stolen them and that Rachel will die in a short time. How those things are connected, we don't know. But when Laban has searched for his gods and found nothing, Jacob then exposes the whole situation in verses 36 through 42. It's a great moment of vindication for Jacob. It's an important moment for any victim to be able to state their case, to tell their story. So in front of Laban's kinsmen, Jacob gets to tell the whole story of how he worked, how his uncle got rich, cheated him, held him to the highest work standards, and yet did nothing according to the rule of law. Jacob ends his case with the wonderful words of verse 42, which are echoed by Moses in the Exodus. He says, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. By now, Laban is regretting his decisions. He's regretting his decision to pursue Jacob. He is utterly humiliated. He is impotent. He cannot kill Jacob or answer Jacob. His gods are menstrual claws for Rachel. He's utterly defeated. And in his impotent rage, he cries out in verse 42, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine, 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 mine. Now, finally, his heart is really exposed, isn't it? Laban has, as all people do, become like what he worships. He has become like his household gods. His gods are helpless. 
Rachel carried them away and sat on them. They can't call for help. They can't do anything. Pharaoh's army lies buried in the Red Sea. The Egyptians worshipped frogs and the river, and those very things betray them and become plagues until the nation lies impotent and defeated under the feet of Jacob's God. But we might ask ourselves tonight, why did God let Laban catch Jacob in the first place? Why did God allow Pharaoh to pin Israel against the Red Sea? Why would Pharaoh or Laban pursue people they know God is with, that God has blessed? Surely this is all madness. Well, here's why. God authored it in order to give one last great demonstration of his loving power. God is showing Jacob and his family, see, see, no one can defeat you without my permission. God is saying to Jacob, I have this dog on a leash. And as we will see next time, God has Esau on a leash too. Our oppressors, brothers and sisters, the oppressors of the church all around the world, our captors can do nothing to us without God's permission. This is why you'll remember Satan must get permission to attack Job. This is why Jesus warned Peter, Satan has asked for you. Satan is God's Satan. Laban is God's instrument. For this very reason, Paul says, God raised Pharaoh up to show his glory. The church's many enemies, our many enemies, are not rivals of God. They are his lackeys, his servants for our good. Now the devil, he'll often say to you, don't you know, as Laban says here, don't you know I have power to do you harm? We need to reply as Jesus did when Pilate said this to him. Drunk on power, Pilate said to Christ, don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. How maddening it must be to be Satan. You could almost feel sorry for him if that were possible. How maddening to know that even when he has oppressed the people of God, he has in the end only driven them closer to their master and driven out of them their love for the world. So God takes him as by the hand and leads him out. God then saves him from his nemesis and his enemy. Lastly, note with me in verses 43 through 55 that God establishes Jacob. All along in our study, uh, you'll recall Laban's answer to Jacob, whenever there's been trouble between them, has been, name your wages, name your wages, be my employee, let's make a deal, a deal that keeps me, Laban, in power, and you, Jacob, under me. Now, strikingly, in verse 44, Laban is forced to say, come now, let us make a covenant, not a new version of slavery, but an agreement, you see, between equals, between two distinct peoples. To our modern eyes and ears, 
These events may seem strange. A covenant is made. Laban and Jacob both take oaths not to attack each other. A pillar of stone is set up as a visible marker of that covenant. Covenants always, by the way, have a visible marker, a sign. Here it is a pillar and a heap of stones. You might find that old-fashioned or silly, but remember that we have monuments all over our capital, Washington, D.C., and they all are, after all, just heaps of stone that remind us of things. The stones here are a monument to the covenant. Noah had the rainbow. Abraham had circumcision. We have baptism. A great covenant must have a sign. And then after the oaths are taken and the signs set up and named, the men sit down and they eat a covenant meal. Jacob had made a sacrifice, you might remember, to mark the covenant, a sacrifice to God. And some parts of those animals would have been taken and cooked and eaten for a covenant meal. Significant covenants are often finalized by the act of sitting at the table together. It's a powerful symbol, isn't it? They put down their weapons and fellowshiped with each other around the table. It's a powerful act, isn't it? It really drives home to everyone that the battle is over and peace is here. Jacob came to Syria with nothing. He leaves on equal footing with Laban. He is now a distinct people. He is on his way to being a great nation. God has in the end fulfilled Psalm 23 in Jacob's life. Jacob in his shepherding days in Syria has learned to sing. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. God led him by the hand. God saved him from his enemies. And God established him as his own people and as a great nation. Now, can you step back with me for a moment and see the picture? This is Jacob's exodus. For 20 years, God worked on him through Laban and Laban's daughters. He froze at night. He simmered during the day. He did a lot wrong. Laban did a lot wrong. But in the end, Jacob inherits peace. Jacob is led out into safety. He emerges from his trials intact, faithful, a new man, a new nation is born. Where there should have been war and death and defeat, there is now peace and a future. Why did Jacob get an exodus? Why did Jacob get an exodus? Why will one day we emerge from our pilgrimage with glory, peace, and a bright future. To answer that, come with me now. Fast forward many years. It is just hours before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. The world has turned against God's one and only. The human race has once again shown its true nature. God sent his son and we hated him. He was the light of the world. He made the world and yet the world would receive him not. Even his disciples who saw so many miracles will run from him and abandon him. By human standards, we expect to find a bitter Jesus, an angry Jesus, a disenchanted Jesus, a warrior Jesus. We expect to hear him say, I've had it up to here with these people. But just then, 
Just as the hatred of Jew and Gentile is at its peak, just as Jesus' death is dawning, what does our Savior do? He does the most extraordinary thing. He sits down to a covenant meal with his people, with his disciples. There should be war. The men he eats with that night are about to run from him, to abandon him. The world is turning against him. One of his own will betray him. And yet what does Jesus do? He makes peace. The meal was supposed to come at the end. You were supposed to kill the sacrifice at the altar and then eat it. But Jesus wouldn't wait. He inverted the order. He says to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And this is the new covenant in my blood. The meal seals the peace. In order that where there should be war, where there should be violence, now there is an oath and peace through an oath. Jesus became the Passover lamb for us so that we might with, might, we might with Jacob experience exodus. Now we have peace with God. We will come out of this world, as we're reminded this morning, we will emerge from this world a great nation. The whole world will be our inheritance. And that's why we can sing words that sound so much like Jacob's life. You can almost imagine Jacob in our text singing these same words from our hymnal. The hymnal says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. That's a covenant stone. Hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Amen. Let's pray. Father, indeed, you sought us when we were a wandering people far from your fold. And as you did with Jacob, you gently led us by the hand. And in all our wilderness wandering, you have never been absent or distant. And one day, even in the face of great opposition, you will bring us into your heavenly kingdom. And all this is ours because of the blood of the new covenant. A stone has been set up, and that stone of stumbling is the Lord Jesus Christ. And even now he stands in heaven as a lamb slain, so that all heaven may look at him and all heaven may know that what you have given your people, the exodus you have prepared for them, cannot be taken away. Help us then to live in the light of these things and look forward to the day that when he shall return, And take us from Syria, from our wandering, and bring us into the everlasting kingdom of his love. Till that day, make us faithful and give us hope. We do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We will sing.